Hello and welcome to Microphilosophy, a podcast featuring diverse discussions with philosophers worth listening to. I'm Julian Bagini. This must be one of the longest and slowest running philosophy podcasts on the internet. We started in 2011, we're only in series 4 and about episode 26. So if you haven't yet started to subscribe, you're only about 11 years in and it's a good time to start. After our three-part season for Opener on trans and women's rights, it's time for another mini-series of discussions. These recorded live at St George's in Bristol. This episode takes its cue from Jonathan Ray's original and fascinating history of philosophy in English, Whitcraft. In the book, Ray rejects the condescending smugness of traditional histories of philosophy, abandoning the standard tarred narratives, and presenting the history of philosophy instead as a haphazard series of unmapped forest paths, a mass of individual stories showing endurance, inventiveness, bewilderment, anxiety, impatience and good humour. Joining me and Jonathan is Andrew Pyle, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of Bristol, for what was at times a somewhat feisty discussion. Jonathan, can I just start by asking, this, is, this, is, this book is a history of, of philosophy. There are lots of histories of philosophy. Can I just ask, what's kind of wrong with, if not all of them, but a lot of them, maybe? A lot. Um, it's true that, that this book is about the history of philosophy in the English language, but in a way, the concentration on English language philosophy is by way of it being a case study. It's a very anecdotal book. Um, it's full of stories about not only philosophers you would have heard of, but philosophers that nobody has heard of. And in a way, the purpose of telling so many stories about how people came across a bit of philosophy is like this working-class Newcastle poet in the 1780s, no, 1680s, um, poetess, who had heard about the idea of seeing things in God, and she wrote to a philosopher about it and said, well, if everything is seen in God, does that mean that love is everywhere? And that love, and he said, yes. And so she said, does that mean that my love for a woman is permissible? And this, rather surprisingly, this Tory uh, priest said, yes, it does. Every every form of love is permissible. And, and she, she went on to become, well, people say, Britain's first feminist. And, but her first revelation was through a sort of accidental contact with philosophy. And there are th- thousands of <laughs> little anecdotes like that about people who came across philosophy. It didn't become the obsession of their lives, but it somehow did turn their lives around. So the general message from that is that I want to, people to realize that philosophy is actually ordinary. Philosophy is something that everyone can do. Um, and indeed, that the great, I don't want to take anything away from the greatness of the great philosophers, but I think you really appreciate their greatness best when you realize that they were ordinary too. You know, and that Descartes was a schoolboy who couldn't quite make sense of what he was being taught. And incidentally, one of the things I discovered when I read through the book in proof was how I kept telling stories about people's relationships with their fathers. And it occurred to me that's not actually an accident because their induction into philosophy was recognizing that the things they'd been brought up to believe might not be true. Philosophy was giving them permission to say to themselves, hang on, everyone says this sort of thing, but maybe it's not true. And I, uh, so that's what I think, in a way, this book is a propaganda for the idea of philosophy as intellectual disobedience. This is a history of philosophy as an incitement to intellectual disobedience. And the other side of that is that it does seem to me that this 
genre of books called The History of Philosophy. Probably the most famous of them is Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy, that there is something extremely mischievous about them. And for one thing, they wrap it all up. The story they tell, ancient Greece and Rome, scholastic Middle Ages, modernity beginning with Descartes, was one that was invented at the end of the 17th century. And it's basically been told over and over again with very slight variations ever since. I mean, it does seem to me that it's a bit of an exaggeration, but not much of one, to say that all histories of philosophy tell the same story. Ancient, middle, modern, beginning with Descartes, and there's some, and you're supposed to be able to fit everything into that. The other thing about them is that they tend to, well, they take away the ordinariness of philosophy, and they equip every philosopher with, you know, Descartes was a rationalist, Hegel was an idealist, as if They'd sort of, as when they were children trying to figure figure things out, these were the labels, you know, these post hoc labels meant something to them. I mean, they're labels that we subsequently place on them, and which very often, actually, when you look at the books, turn out not to be appropriate. And I think a lot of people have done this. They've been, they thought, oh, well, someone's told me I ought to read Descartes. Well, first of all, I'll look up Descartes in the history of philosophy, and you'll find out that he was this right. And then you start reading the meditations, and it's nothing like what you've read in the, in the history. The real mischief, I think, of the histories of philosophy is a mischief that attaches to a great deal of forms of popularization. Because it's histories of philosophy are essentially works for the popularization of philosophy. They don't have great prestige in the great universities, but it does seem to me that they have a massive presence in philosophical culture, partly because... Most people who, sort of teenagers who want to become, become interested in philosophers, in philosophy, will read one. They'll probably be given one for Christmas by an uncle that are desperate for what to buy for this (laughs) clever teenager. And they definitely, they are a real cornerstone of um, philosophical publishing. They get, they sell in huge numbers. I'm not sure many people read them beyond the first few pages, but they, and I bet, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if almost, if the majority of people in this room own or have owned a copy of Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy, and that not all of those people have got to the end of it, but nevertheless, there hasn't been. Now, what I mean by saying that there's something mischievous about these books and, and other books of popularization, is that the act of popularization appears as though it's a piece of democracy. It's saying, listen, these are cultural treasures which should be available to everybody, just as seats at the Royal Opera House should be available for five pounds to young people. Well, Bertrand Russell's History of Philosophy makes philosophy available to everybody. It means that it's no longer only for people who have command of Greek and Latin and so on. But I think there's a real snag with that. And I've been going through some family papers for some quite unrelated reason, and I found a letter from my mother's, from my mother's mother to my mother, written in the 1950s, saying, I've been reading some Bertrand Russell. And it's not clear what it was. It wasn't the big book. And she said, isn't it so wonderful that someone of such extraordinary intelligence takes the trouble 
of trying to explain all these difficult issues to someone as stupid as me. And he explains it so brilliantly. But all the same, at the end, I don't really feel I've understood. But I think, and, and, then, and then I think, well, actually, it's an effect of the existence of the kind of explanation that Russell gives. That Russell is then, or any popularizer is a popularizer of philosopher, is in danger of in effect giving the opposite message to the one they appear to give. Instead of saying philosophy is available to all, what they really say is philosophy is terribly difficult and it, have, you have to be as clever as me to understand it. But I'm going to be kind enough to come down with you kids and tell you a little bit about, about what's really going on. And then they will come up with phrases like, the, and I, teachers do this a great deal as well, saying, oh, well, of course, um, Kant's transcendental deduction is enormously complicated. So I'm afraid I can only give you a very brief summary of it now. And I know when I've seen colleagues doing that, they couldn't do anything beyond the brief summary. And the purpose of saying, I'm going to give you a very brief summary of this deep and difficult thing, well, or, or at least the effect of it, is to tell the students, tell the readers, this is something you're never going to understand. I understand it. And, even, and very often that I understand it is itself a lie. This book is a, is, is a manifesto against that kind of popularization of philosophy. I mean, you, you, Wittgenstein, you mentioned towards the end of the book, said something like he, he didn't want to spare his readers the trouble of thinking. And I think perhaps that's partly what you're suggesting, that sometimes these things, I give it to you in these nice digestible forms that you can understand, and actually, rather than sort of confront people with the idea that thinking is difficult. I mean, Andrew, the, 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 the issues that Jonathan have are partly to do with... Uh, histories of philosophy as, as all books, but also partly, I guess, about, you know, the way in which the history of philosophy is presented. You've got your rationalists, your empiricists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do, you, do you share any of his concerns about that? Or would you like to defend some of this? I have very different reactions to this book. I loved the book and I loathed the introduction. The introduction is entitled Towards a Revolution, and I thought it was a very odd and a very ill-directed polemic. I suspect Jonathan's just come across some very bad teaching of philosophy. Let's take, you know, that example of the empiricist and the rationalists. I taught a finally a course here for umpteen years entitled The Rationalists. The first lecture and the first seminar were, are these labels any use? There's a wonderful book by Louis Loeb in which he attacks the whole tradition of dividing up the philosophers of the early modern period to empiricists and rationalists. So I introduced them to that. And then I give them John Cottingham's rather qualified defense of this pair of traditional labels. And that's the first lecture in the first seminar. So it's not, here's the right way to divide up the early modern philosophers. It's, here is a traditional way of dividing up the early modern philosophers. The one thing that's clearly true is that it's not historical. Locke and Barclay and Hume did not think of themselves as the empiricist school. And Descartes and Spinoza and Leibniz did not think of themselves as the rationalist school. So as Jonathan says, these are post hoc labels. They didn't think of themselves as that. How else might we divide up the early modern philosophers? Well, we might divide them up as Jones does into ancients and moderns. We might divide them up into the gods and the giants, the people defending orthodox religion and the people attacking it. There are lots of ways of dividing them up. But, but just to interrupt you there, but that, you, you did that, so good, you did the right thing there. But isn't it true that when people do pick up introductions to philosophy, they don't normally get all that 
careful um, qualification. And things are rather presented in sort of straightforward terms. I mean, for the sake of this discussion, by the way, we, we, we were talking about rationalists and empiricists. We're not going to try and give uh, quick descriptions of what they're supposed to be. But, you know, it's like, you know, there are different sort of teams of philosophers. The rationalists are those who, who you know, the caricature, the simple caricature is those who, who believe that, you know, reason is primary and you can deduce all the most important truths from rational principles alone massive simplification also not necessarily an accurate description of them all um empiricists take their being from experience but most most books don't you think most introductions are guilty of that simplification but the, you know the one the one thing you learn if you read descartes or spinoza or leibniz is there are lots of appeals to experience the one thing if you read Locke and barclay certainly there are appeals to rational principles so as soon as you set up this distinction you start knocking it down the best defense distinction I know comes from Lisa Downing, and she just says, don't assume that these are schools or traditions in philosophy. Ask of any given philosopher how much they think can be done by reason alone, and then you get a sort of spectrum. So you get Hume at one end of the spectrum, and you get probably Spinoza at the other end, but there are axioms in Spinoza's ethics. Book two of Spinoza's ethics, we feel that a certain body is affected in various ways. Where does he get the grounds for that from? Experience. So is Spinoza your card-carrying, you know, rationalist philosopher? Manifestly not. In your book, Jonathan, you, you mentioned how Descartes, I mean, was received in uh, Britain initially as a kind of Baconian, and Bacon was taken to be the, the uh, you know, the, the, the archetypal empiricist. And, I mean, there's this sort of idea of the, the, the new philosophy, which seems to be a category they had at the time, which doesn't really map onto our categories now. What was the, what was the new philosophy? Uh, they we're talking here 17th century, or uh, century, I think, and, and perhaps beyond. What, what was the new philosophy, which was changing the way people thought in, in the English-speaking world? Well, the new philosophy, it, it was a thing at the time. People talked about the new philosophers in the 17th century, at least towards the end of the 17th century. <laughs> And it meant philosophers who prided themselves on making a break with tradition. And Descartes was obviously an example of that. Maybe Bacon was too, Hobbes was. And they had a bit of a caricature of what the tradition was in that it was Aristotelianism seen as a, as a much more homogeneous and inert mass of doctrine than actually it had been. But there was also a linguistic aspect to it. New philosophers, well, they continued to write in Latin because it was much easier than writing in other languages, but all of them, Descartes, Locke, and Hobbes, for example, could also write in the native languages. In the case of um, Locke, he actually preferred it. One of the things I tried to get across at the beginning of the book was that if you were, if you'd been an ordinary person, well, this is how I begin it, if you'd been in the audience of the first performance of Hamlet in 1601 and heard um, Hamlet saying, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. The question is, well, what would people have thought philosophy meant? And my inquiries suggest to me that they would have thought they wouldn't really know what it was as a topic or a discipline. What they would have known was that it was Latin. Philosophy was a culture of Latin, of, well, it was translated out of Greek, a lot of it, but it was Greek-inflected Latin. And there was a real issue about whether, uh, I mean, rather like the issue of whether the, um, whether the Bible could be understood in vernaculars. There was a real issue about whether philosophy could be 
translated into vernaculars or whether it was really tied to the Latin language. And the new philosophers were one of the things that made them new and, and was very conspicuous to people at the time, although those of us in the 21st century who rely mostly on translations are rather blind to what was written in Latin and what was written in French or what was written in English. At the time, it was very, it was very noticeable what language things were written in. And it was also very noticeable that in certain languages it was bloody difficult making concepts that had been embedded in Latin, that had been developed in Latin, and which were almost perhaps inseparable from Latin, into concepts of a modern vernacular language. And very specifically, this was a, this was a problem in the English language, because whereas words like propositio and negatio can go fairly well into, at least into Latin and into Italian and, and French, you put them into English, and you get, you know, proposition doesn't sound that un-French, but proposition is not an English word. And, you know, English people to this day are very conscious of a learned Latin part of the English language, which maybe, you know, if you're a bit of a Levisite or a Laurentian or an Orwellian, you'll think you should avoid because that's learned and posh and the proper English language doesn't have these Latinisms in it. And one of the dramas that, that I begin the book with is uh, this guy Ralph Lever in the 1570s, I think, says, well, if we're going to have philosophy in English, let's have it in real English and not in Latin English. For example, let's not call dialectics dialectics or logici, logic, let's call it witcraft. That's a good old English word which has good old English roots. And instead of saying every proposition is either an affirmation or a negation, let's say every show say is either a yay say or a nay say. And it did strike me that, I mean, one of, one of the purposes of this book is to, is to get away from the idea that the way philosophy has developed up to our own time was inevitable. It seems to me there are all sorts of roads not taken. And that's a rather significant one. I think maybe our sense of what philosophy is would be different if it hadn't been placed, as it still is, almost exclusively in a rather Latinate part of the English language. And if we did talk about chaussées instead of proposition. I mean, the path's not taken is a very interesting thing. I guess perhaps the reason they didn't settle on witcraft was they knew that people would uh, confuse it with witchcraft, uh, as, as they did in the advertising. Um, Andrew, one, one of the things, that, I want to take your view on this, one of the things that comes out in, in Jonathan's book is how, you know, it's about the, say, the subtitle is The Invention of Philosophy in English, in the English-speaking world, but it's remarkable how sort of international the intellectual community was from a very early time. You're an expert in sort of early modern philosophy and early, I don't know exact dates of that, we're talking from the 17th century perhaps. Um, to, to what extent was there kind of free exchange and cross-fertilization across the uh, countries of, of Europe? And to what extent were people, you know, in, in their own national sort of cultures? There's a hell of a lot because, of course, Latin is the lingua franca at least until 1700 and probably later. As you move into the 18th century, educated people are supposed to speak French. There's a wonderful correspondence between Locke and his French buddy Toinach. And Toinach says, you can write to me in any civilized language. And that's Greek or Latin or French or Italian, but not in English. <laughs> but uh, yes, I mean, when does English become a sort of philosophical lingua franca? Much later, well into the 18th century, if not into the 19th. 
I remember having an interesting discussion when I was in Melbourne about what was the latest philosophical or scientific classic written in Latin. And we got to Epinus, probably, theory of electricity and magnetism, late 18th century Germany. And I suppose Linnaeus, Linnaeus writing in Sweden, middle, late 18th century, still writing in Latin. So Latin survives as the learned language well into the 18th century. Kant would write his, you know, his dissertation in Latin. But, you know, by the middle 18th century, educated people in Europe are supposed to speak French. You know, French is very much the dominant language. And English and German sort of creep up later, 18th, 19th century, as learned languages. But, but the, you know, the interchange between national communities is very, very strong. I mean, one, one sort of like self-image of British philosophy perhaps it's not just retrospective is this sense that it's you know the, the, the British are about good common sense and everything and they're against kind of verbiage of, of latinate terms etc and I think you know you, with Hobbes perhaps I, I notice when Hobbes comes along um, he sort of helps to sort of promote that image of philosophy as, as good sense against this and a bit later on this figure called John Norris who protested about the you know that what of what passes for philosophy is quibbling and jesting and not arguing but punning to, to, to what extent is that kind of idea that philosophy in English is somehow a kind of a resistance to uh, you know, pretension and, uh, and so forth been how central has that been and for, and for how long I think uh, it, re- it really starts with Voltaire comes to England writes a book in English on the English saying how wonderful they are because they're not as highfalutin as the French but I think there's what Andrew says is absolutely right that there was a, a lot of um, linguistic interchange and a lot of polyglotism I think I'm rather intrigued by the story of I think it was in 1830 that Victor Cousin a French philosopher goes to Berlin and talks to Hegel and of course they talk in Latin what other common language would they have I think that we as denizens of the 21st century find it hard to imagine how multilingual many of our ancestors were and how natural it came to them to be able to do linguistic switching and to learn extra languages. You know, when, when, not that long ago, when, when Wittgenstein wanted to understand Kierkegaard better, he taught himself Danish. What, why, why, of course he would. That's what you would do if you want to read Kierkegaard. Um, but I think this, is, this has a very particular relevance to philosophy because I bet if you look at a philosopher's bookshelves, you will find that there is an extraordinary um, array of, well, if they're good at languages, they will have books in several languages. Otherwise, they will at least have a lot of books that are translations. Um, and I think that philosophy is unusual, in fact, probably unique um, amongst Western disciplines in the extent to which, you know, you're expected. Gilbert Ryle said that he introduced this great revolution into Oxford in, um, in the 1950s by appointing people to teach philosophy who could not speak Greek. And, I, and it was it was a sort of revolution. So, and Collingwood, you know, this contemporary of Ryle's, he took it for granted that if you were a philosopher, you would speak Latin, Greek, and French, and Italian, and Spanish, and German. And I think that there is this isn't just a sort of external fact about how many sources in different languages are accessible to philosophers. It seems to me that there's something actually very close to the core of what makes philosophy worthwhile about this 
situating itself in a world of different languages and of, if you like, interference between languages. A lot of people's early experience of something like philosophy, of the sort of intellectual unease that is at the root of philosophy, comes from noticing that the words they know in one language don't map exactly onto the words in another. And you you start making distinctions and, and seeing that things that you thought were natural and unquestionable are, in fact, very far from it. And my sense of, in a sense, my, my book being about philosophy in the English language was not in order to show how special it is to have philosophy situated in the English language, but to show how philosophy in the English language is constructed out of philosophy in Latin, Greek, French, Dutch, and everything else. There's no such thing as a pure English philosophy. I mean, one of the things that you alluded to there is the boundaries between philosophy and other disciplines and the way now we tend to make these neat separations. So, I mean, in your book, you have like, you know, Coleridge appears, for example, which is would would not generally appear in many uh, introductory courses to philosophy. But one of the the other sort of uh, boundaries which I think is interesting, and perhaps Andrew can say something about this, is we're now used to thinking of philosophy as being an entirely separate domain from theology and sort of religious thought. But one thing that seems very evident in the book is that for a very, very long period of time, a lot of the philosophical debates were very much sort of framed in the context of, of theological ones. And is that, is that something that you think gets due um, attention? Or do you think there's a tendency sometimes to kind of write the theology, the, the religion out? When we read Locke, we kind of set aside his, his, the fact that he was a Christian. We, said, we kind of ignore Descartes' Well, Christian this takes us into another of my rants against Jonathan's introduction, which is he seems to overlook the fact that the teaching of philosophy has got more and more and more contextualized as, you know, throughout my professional career. You know, I grew up doing history of philosophy in the 1970s, and you know, canonical figure would be someone like Jonathan Bennett. And Jonathan Bennett teases out the arguments from the canonical texts and engages with the arguments. I happen to quite like Jonathan Bennett's work, but he's the opposite of the way things are done these days. You know, in the course of my 30-odd years teaching history of philosophy here at Bristol, we moved from Jonathan Bennett to somebody like Dan Garber. I came across him at a conference one day, and I asked him what he'd been doing, and he said... For the past week, I've been walking the streets of Paris. And I asked him why he'd been walking the streets of Paris. And he said he'd been trying to work out, you know, where Descartes took rooms when he was there and where Merzen had his little cell and where Gassendi lived or where his patron lived. Gassendi tended to sponge off the nobility if he possibly could. (laughs) So he was working out who was living where and who was living in the posh bit of town and walking around the streets of Paris wondering which bits had been bulldozed for the Haussmann Boulevards, which of the bits of the 17th century Paris were even still there. And he thought he was going to gain insight into these canonical texts from Descartes and Merzen and Gassendi and Arnaud and Marbonge by walking the streets of Paris. Now, I'm not quite sure how much insight you're going to get, but you know, the more contextual you get in your approach to the history of philosophy, the more you're going to see these canonical texts as framed by debates in religion. You know, if you pick up Locke's essay on human understanding and you read the famous chapter on personal identity, unless you have some glimmering of a sense of Christian theology, you're not going to get very far with it. You know, what he's trying to show is there can be an afterlife and heaven and hell and rewards and punishments, even if there isn't an immaterial soul. So he's trying to detach a question about reward and punishment, about an afterlife, from a metaphysical question about whether we do or not have an immaterial soul. 
And that, of course, lent, lent him, made, made him open to lots and lots and lots of theological attacks, because his opponents say, you can't have heaven and hell and afterlife and reward and punishments unless you buy our metaphysics. So there's an, an easy example where there's a canonical text in the history of philosophy, and to understand what's going on in that canonical text, you have to go outside canonical philosophy and go into issues in religion. There are lots and lots of other ones. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that it has become more contextualised because, I mean, you know, even when I was an undergraduate, even postgraduate, I have to say I saw very, very little in, interest in historical context. And the other thing that was uh, there's no interest at all in was biography, actually. It would seem to be utterly... There's this idea, you know, that you, you discuss the arguments, not the person, and that biography is completely irrelevant to understanding the philosophy of a person. Jonathan's book's got quite a lot on, on the personalities involved. Is that something, again, is that something that also that you're seeing more bother, uh, interest in, in professional philosophy or is it still the idea that you engage with the arguments and whether or not they were you know like Bentham a bit strange and cold and detached there, is irrelevant there, there's a spectrum there are certain utterly uncontroversial contextual theses I mean one is you look at the minor figures from the period you often learn a lot more from the minor figures of a period than you learn from the canonical figures the minor figures are more likely actually to be representative of the thoughts of their period Nobody disputes that. Another thing you will do if you're a contextualist historian of philosophy is look at correspondence. You're going to say, who is this guy engaging with? Don't assume that he's you know, living in a thought world of his own. Look at the correspondence. Look at the textbooks of the day. What's he learning from the texts? Now, all of that in history, writing and history of philosophy today is pretty well uncontroversial. It gets interesting when you go further and further out from the pure philosophy and then you get Dan Garber walking the streets of Paris thinking he's going to learn a lot about these canonical texts of Descartes and Malzain and Gassendi by walking the streets of Paris and trying to imagine how it would be in the middle of the 17th century. And yes, people. Well, of course, Hume has a lot to say about that. Hume thinks there are character types. And if you have a particular character type, you're going to fall for a particular position in philosophy. Now, there's Hume sort of gradually subverting the old idea that we are rational animals. Hume is going to say, well, actually, if you look closely, a lot of the work going on in philosophy is persuasion and its appeal to the passions. And if you're a person of a particular mindset, you're far more likely to be a skeptic or a Stoic or an Epicurean or a Platonist. And that's all going on in the 18th century. Yeah, there's a quote actually, you, you, you quote the book Jonathan Hume, um, "'Tis not solely in poetry and music we must follow our taste and sentiment, but likewise in philosophy." I, th I think that's something, although you were right, Hume said it hundreds of years ago, I think it's still something you, people resist <laughs> accepting, as a matter of fact, in practice, because one wants to feel that you follow the argument wherever it leads. But Can I go back first? I'm sorry that Andrew's become so defensive about what I wrote in the introduction, because I, 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 I certainly wasn't attacking... It's perfectly true that there is a much more contextualist approach to dead philosophers now than there was 50 years ago, and that that's a good thing. And I guess that uh, I wasn't trying to say that I'm doing lots of contextualized philosophy here that no one else is doing. But actually, I don't think contextualism is enough. And one of the things I, I, I do say in this introduction that Andrew so dislikes is that we should stop getting worried about being anachronistic. There's been this huge thing about, yeah, we need to walk the streets and really understand what it was like being Descartes. Well, I'm not sure that I'm that interested. Well, it seems to me there are two different things you could expect 
of, of an account of a, a dead philosopher. One is to be as accurate as possible in representing the opinions that the person happened to hold. And of course, you know, the more accurate you can be about this, the better. But actually, I mean, the reason you want to find out about it or to teach it is that the thing is supposed to light a fire in your mind or in the mind of, of your students, which is nothing, it isn't so important that they should know exactly what was in Descartes' mind in 1632, as that they should be able to respond to it in a really exciting way. And quite frankly, I would much rather have Foucault talking about what was going on in Descartes' meditations than Dan Garber going around telling me on the basis of a thousand pages of, um, of context, uh, of context exactly what Descartes thought he was up to. I mean, I think there's a great deal to be said for anachronistic interpretations. I mean, we read these books in order to get something out of it. The reason for studying philosophy is not so that you will have more and more information about what people used to think in the past. It's so that you will have more and more stimulation to think things out for yourself. Perhaps I should say something about the method I used in writing this book. I was, um, people have said, well, well, why didn't you bring it up to the present so it would be complete? And I thought, because I don't think there's anything such, any such thing as a complete story. I think any story is going to be arbitrary, and I wanted to glory in the arbitrariness of my story. I, I mentioned one of the points about the book is that it, it, it focuses on years set at 50 year intervals. So the first book is about what it was like being a philosopher in 1601. That's about next 1651. And I wrote each chapter in the order, I mean, after some, when I really started earnestly writing the book, and I went through the big, heavy catalogues of the British Library and the Bodleian and things, finding things with the word philosophy in that were published in 1601, just to completely prevent myself being influenced by the fact that you know, everyone knows the most famous British philosopher of the time was Francis Bacon. Because actually you'll find that no one was slightest bit interested in Francis Bacon at the time. I wanted to give myself this discipline of not having, not allowing my prejudices to determine who was going to get mentioned. Who mentioned philosophy, who mentioned canonical philosophers, and then working out from that. So, you know, Shakespeare mentions philosophy a lot, so he gets in. And... I also studiously avoided thinking about what was going to be in the next chapter because I didn't want to get into this thing of choosing to talk about something in one chapter because I knew that that would pave the way for what was going to come in the next chapter because I wanted to prevent my mind from working in that way where history is always looking forward. And you, I just wanted to remind you know, the great historical principle that in a given year, that all, all sorts of futures are open. And the fact that only one of the possible futures becomes actual afterwards is something that wasn't present in the minds of people at the time. And I actually mentioned this to my publisher that I thought it was a bit like Schoenberg's t tone row system of composition, where you avoid yourself falling into any traditional habits of composition in particular keys by um, by, by using all 12 tones in the, at the, at the beginning. And... Uh, well, my publisher said, please don't mention that. <laughs> but there was some truth in it. And I really didn't know from one chapter to the next what was going to be the key. The last chapter focuses on Ludwig Wittgenstein, who died in 1951. So I had to, I gave myself this, there was always going to be a date. And I was going to work out from that. I wasn't going to start from thinking this was a really important philosopher. But 
I'd done quite a lot of work on this chapter on the assumption that I was going to base it all around Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism, 1951. And I just found I couldn't quite get the traction with that. So, so people have said, well, did you think it was all the way, you know, all this 800 pages were going to end up with Wittgenstein's The Hero? No, I honestly didn't have a clue that that was going to happen until I got to the end. I wanted to, people to fight, to remember or to be able to re-experience how intellectual developments came as a surprise to people at the time. And the real conundrum for a historian is to be able to write back that surprisingness, given that we know that, you know, we're now familiar with what has happened. One of the things your book does, Jonathan, is sort of give a bit more light to some of the female thinkers who are, who are not can- canonical. Harriet Martineau, Mariana Evans, Cara Bray, for example... I started the magazine called The Philosopher's Magazine um, many years ago now. We had an early issue on women philosophers, and we interviewed Mary Warnock, because Mary Warnock had edited a volume called Women Philosophers. And it was very interesting, because when we spoke to her about it, she said that the only reason she did it was because she needed the money. <laughs> She's very honest. She's very honest. And also, that you know, she, she was kind of of the view that the reason why, there's a, the simple reason why there weren't so many women philosophers taught was simply because historically they hadn't had the opportunities, the same opportunities as men, so there simply weren't many of them around. So that, you know, you could, you could dig away and find interesting neglected figures to a certain extent, but, you know, they just simply didn't have the same opportunities. And so, you know, it's not that there are a large number of people who haven't been uh, acknowledged properly because of sexism. They just didn't get to even emerge in the first place because of misogyny. Now, I mean, Andrew, you're, you've been working in the university sector, which there's a lot of pressure from students and staff to kind of, you know, question the sort of dead white male paradigm in, in all subjects, including philosophy. What's your view of the state of play at this at the moment? How are you and your colleagues thinking about, you know, the, the, the women philosophers of, of the past? Obviously, it's a different question to what we're doing about emerging women philosophers now and encouraging more. But what about, what about that? Well, I mostly do dead white males. <laughs> and I'm unapologetic about that. I think for precisely the reason Mary Warren gives... Very few women had a chance for decent education. Those that did, those that crop up in the literature, tended to be royalty, nobility, people who could take advantage of their social position. I remember years ago now I was working for doing some stuff for Rudy Thomas, who had a publishing house here, and I came across Elizabeth Haldane, who did lots of really very, very fine high-powered translations, and I discovered that she was the sister of Julian Haldane and RBS Haldane, who was a Hegelian philosopher and went on to become Lord Chancellor. And I'd read a little bit about her background, and it said, well, basically, she was able to take advantage of the private tutors of her two brothers. This is a very, very affluent Scottish family, and they hired in private tutors for the brothers. And the sister sort of obviously sat in on some of the classes and thought, this is interesting stuff. How many women are going to have that opportunity? Very, very few. In terms of reading lists, I had precisely this row with a lovely woman colleague called Joanna who was trying to persuade us all to put lots and lots of women on the reading lists. And at the time, I was teaching Introduction to Philosophy A, and I said, well, Margaret Wilson's going to be there, and Catherine Wilson's going to be there, and Antonia Lalordo's going to be there. And I got to about half a dozen and ran out, and that's just how the literature is. But at the same time, I was teaching second-year ethics, and I was teaching Kantian ethics, and I was teaching Aristotelian ethics, 
And the reading list for second-year ethics, I would guess, would be 65 70% women. That's just reflecting, you know, who is contributing to the literature in these fields. If I'm going to teach a course on Kantian ethics, Honora O'Neill's going to be there, Christine Corsgaard's going to be there, Marcia Barron's going to be there, as a matter of course, because they are stellar figures in this field. Thinking of Honora O'Neill, there was a wonderful story I was telling to somebody about uh, Stefan Kerner, who was professor of philosophy here at Bristol, and he went to hear Honora O'Neill give a talk on Kant, and he accosted her after her lecture on Kant and said she had persuaded him that women could do philosophy. I'm not quite sure how Honora O'Neill answered. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, yes, indeed, indeed. Well, good job she didn't, there's no sharp object in her hand at the time, I thought. Jonathan, there are people, you say Harriet Martin and Marion Evans Carabray, for example, were you deliberately trying to do any kind of correcting, or did these people just naturally, when you looked at the history, were they just there? Already? Well, I was, I was very conscious of the problem of the underrepresentation of women in philosophy, and I was also conscious of the pitfalls of desperately searching for women philosophers. For example, there's a 17th century woman called Margaret Cavendish, who there's a bit of a fad, for, and she is the most boring philosophical writer ever. And people who want to study women philosophers have to study her. And I thought that's, that didn't seem right to me. And partly I think it's we have a particular idea of what constitutes great philosophy, which is that it's large books full of great themes, and that maybe there's that particularly discriminates against women philosophers. It's rather like if you have a gallery full of oil paintings going back for the last 500 years, there will be two or three women and 2,000 men. If you have a gallery full of watercolours, there'll be 50-50. And I think maybe it's partly a matter of what genre you concentrate on, whether how frequently women will be found. But the other aspect of it is, well, I, I began by, I think, by talking about wanting to show that philosophy is ordinary. And I mentioned this Mary Astle, this first English feminist. Well, she started by being interested in whether her love for a woman could be divinely blessed. But she went on, she did actually read some Malebranche, and she found this, it was a French philosopher who was very, very influential in, in the English in English translation, much more influential than he was in his native France. And one of the things he said, which was by no means the first thing to say, is that education can be a philosophical disadvantage. Because once you've got your head full of Latin phrases and you're able to pluck a quotation from Aristotle and a quotation from Plato, you no longer have to think. But if and this Mary Astle made a great deal. If you're a child or a woman who has no Latin and no Greek, you actually have to think about it yourself and that maybe there will be more authentic philosophical thinking going in and on in the woman and the child than there is in the learned gentleman at his dais giving his learned lecture to bored students. So I think it's, it does depend partly on what you mean by philosophy. And I think if you do look for, well, I talked about ordinary philosophy. Another phenomenon that I've become very interested in is what I call wild philosophy, which is where people engage in something that deserves to be called 
philosophical thinking in the sense I said, you know, philosophy is when you say, hang on, everybody says this, but I'm not sure it holds water. And people can do that without ever having heard the word philosophy, without having heard of Locke, Barclay and Hume. My daughter did it when she said to me, well, what would have become of me if you'd never met my mother? <laughs> Which in a way is a sort of stupid question, but it's also, it actually goes very deep because, you know, because, it, you know, what do you actually mean by me? And I think kids do do this. And then another story I, I, I came across of an English priest who goes to bring Christianity to the Native Americans. To, he, he's going to, as he says, gospelize the Indians in the 1630s. And he's very impressed that when he tries to, he does it partly in, he, he teaches himself Algonquin, but he also gets them to speak some English. And he says, oh, there's this wonderful old woman who keeps saying things like, well, if the world's going to be destroyed, what's going to be in the space of it? <laughs> um, and he said that his congregations in England had never asked him such interesting philosophical questions as these innocent, I mean, no doubt something a bit colonialist about his, his, his sort of... But still, you know, they'd certainly never heard of philosophy. And I think that if we start looking for ordinary philosophy or still more wild philosophy, then we might find much more women engaged in it. But I think what I might also find is that if, as I think, philosophy is what happens when you say, I'm not going to accept everything I've been told about this, I'm going to try and work it out for myself, then very significant philosophical activity may actually leave very little trace in any literary record. It will just mean that you've, you know, you've gone out on a starry night and you've somehow been enormously moved by how the vastness of the sky makes you reflect on the triviality of the things that seem all important to you. You know, you think, what does... What does the universe care about Brexit and Boris Johnson? You know, in, the, in that sort of... And, and those sort of thoughts, well, they don't often get recorded. The poetry of Thomas Hardy is wonderful for recording those sorts of thoughts. There's a wonderful one where, which ends with, and the baby set of thinking. You know, a baby sets of thinking because the baby noticed that the bird was not frightened of the bull, it wasn't frightened of the dog, but it was frightened of the big fat gentleman. And the baby sat at me. And, uh, and that baby isn't going to be a philosopher with a place on the shelves of the great philosophical libraries. But nevertheless, as Hardy portrays him, he or she is having a serious philosophical think and that's what philosophy is really about. Yeah, I mean, they say history is written by the winners, and I guess, you know, philosophical history is also written, written by the winners in, in a way, because the people whose, whose works have survived enter the, the canon, which is an issue perhaps we could, we could even talk about there. And I think also, you know, the idea of where philosophy is to be found, I, I do think it's an interesting one, because professionalisation of the discipline means increasingly we expect philosophy to be found in philosophy departments, but um, it seems to me that quite obvious that philosophy is found elsewhere and in different traditions it was assumed to be found elsewhere as well so because one thing I found with my sort of very limited exposure to Japanese philosophy is if you look at Japanese philosophy you really have to look at Japanese poetry literature art as well it's not really self-contained in that way thank you very much to Andrew and Jonathan this evening and thank you for coming
and welcome to Microphilosophy, a podcast featuring diverse discussions with philosophers worth listening to. I'm Julian Bagini. This must be one of the longest and slowest running philosophy podcasts on the internet. We started in 2011, we're only in series 4 and about episode 26. So if you haven't yet started to subscribe, you're only about 11 years in and it's a good time to start. After our three-part season for opener on trans and women's rights, it's time for another mini-series of discussions. These recorded live at St George's in Bristol. This episode takes its cue from Jonathan Ray's original and fascinating history of philosophy in English, Whitcraft. In the book, Ray rejects the condescending smugness of traditional histories of philosophy, abandoning the standard tarred narratives, and presenting the history of philosophy instead as a haphazard series of unmapped forest paths, a mass of individual stories showing endurance, inventiveness, bewilderment, anxiety, impatience and good humour. Joining me and Jonathan is Andrew Pyle, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of Bristol, for what was at times a somewhat feisty discussion. 